0: This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser.
1: And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing you the latest news in the world of business and finance.
0: And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries.
1: You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only
2: on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Let's get together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why did you and I? Companies uh, getting together, particularly in the biotech uh, sector, we talked about a little bit earlier with Dave Wilson, a batch of biotech deals today, Celgene buying Juno for $9 billion, Sanofi buying Bioverative in an $11.6 billion deal. Let's talk about that to Tony, uh, Tatiana Dare is with us, healthcare stocks reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us in our Bloomberg 11:30 studio. Uh, so you've been busy today. Yes, very busy. <laughs> let's walk through the store. Uh, let's walk through these um, deals. Celgene, first of all, buying Juno, nine billion dollar deal. Yes. Deal. Celgene shares were little changed. Yes, uh, basically, you know, for, for Celgene,
3: um, of course, they're gaining an asset, uh, you know, in the cutting edge uh, therapies uh, of cancer therapies, basically. But a lot of the are still saying that Celgene, uh still has a lot of work to do to, you know, boost the confidence, investor confidence, uh, since they uh, lowered their 2020 uh, guidance. I think it was late in the fall so sometime in October. So if you look at the chart, you really see that sizable drop there, and shares have still uh, struggled to recover.
0: It was it was smacked around. I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> it was So re- uh, the challenge. I mean, for it them- went from as high as uh, close to 150, kind of back in uh, late September, early October. Uh, uh, and now of course we're at 102 but it dropped at that point to below 100 a share so yes. that was a huge drop
3: yes and the challenge there uh, is that they basically ended the development of uh, one of their uh, late stage uh Crohn's disease a drug it didn't work out so they had to end development and uh its top blood cancer drug is facing um you know pressure from generics that's about to start in about a couple of years so they still have a couple of years uh to go but you know that's coming and investors have been focused off uh, on what is the uh, Drug maker going to do to offset that?
0: Tatiana, it's great to be Junova today. 91% yes. premium. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. Um, so, do most folks think, okay, great, this is a smart move by you, Seljine, but as you said, there's still more work to be done.
3: Yes, uh, for sure. And, you know, for Juno, is uh, the investors have been really patient because uh, the the shares, I think, in 2015 have really plunged after its first uh, experimental CAR-T uh, therapy where they, you know, take your own cells, they reprogram them to mm-hmm. attack the cancer. Um, that, they also ended the development of that uh, drug because they've seen a lot of deaths and there were a lot of side effects. So, so, you know, they've been uh, really working on this new therapy and they've had some exciting data. So, uh, you know, for Gino for investors, it yeah. was a big payoff. It's
0: right? fascinating when you think about, you know, kind of using your own immune system yes, right, um, and cells to, to make things work. And that's really a, an area where we see a lot of drug companies um, playing in, if you will. Hey, just quickly, just got about 45 seconds. Tell us about Sanofi.
3: Uh, Yes. uh, You know, with Sanofi, investors really are really skeptical about the deal because they're saying that Sanofi is stepping into a market that uh, maybe doesn't understand very well. We had a Bernstein analyst really saying that, you know, uh, Sanofi is entering an area where it will have to defend its products right away. It's a very competitive area. It's hemophilia. um, And uh, it's he called it a troubled area, basically, because yeah. uh, the the business there, the core business, diabetes drugs, are seeing pressure. And now, you know, you're paying 12 billion dollars to enter, uh, you know, another area which is highly competitive.
0: Its last takeover attempt didn't go so well. Yes. Okay. And stock is down. I should say, ADR shares of Sanofi are down more than three percent in today's session. Tatiana, thank you so much for breaking it down. Tatiana Dari, she's healthcare stocks reporter at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter and at Bloomberg.com. Oh, oh, oh. Together now, That's what we're seeing with the ETF industry in Florida this week. They've got trillions of dollars now being held in thousands of different types of ETF products. Exchange-traded funds now have gone from a sideshow of the financial world to the center stage and a who's who of the ETF world uh, really gathering at this Inside ETF conference that's underway in Hollywood, Florida. That's where we find Michael Jones, president and CEO at Richmond, Virginia-based Riverfront Investment Group, and he joins us on the phone uh, from the conference. Nice to have you here uh, this Monday. Tell us a little bit about the uh, environment this year. There's been, you know, especially coming off a year where we saw the markets, the equity markets uh, up so much and a lot of flows moving into uh, the ETF world. Well, I think
1: when 2017, when we look back on it in in a few years' time, we'll see how it was sort of the best of times for uh, financial markets. We saw a really nice acceleration in global growth. We saw a big stimulus coming through with the tax reform in the U.S. And all of this acceleration in growth and earnings power was coming through while most central banks across the world were still pouring on the coal with respect to monetary stimulus. As we move into 2018, we see that environment shifting where all the good news we got in 2017 on growth keeps coming, but the central banking environment, we think, is going to be very substantially different, with the Fed having much more meaningful rate increases in 2018 than in 2017, and probably more significantly, less quantitative easing support from overseas central banks. And and I think a lot of investors are a little late to waking up to how different that environment could be.
0: You're right. It could be very, very different. I want to dig into that in just a moment, Michael, but going back to the world of ETFs, is Interesting. We have a great story uh, that's out on the Bloomberg, and it just talks about what's going on there in Florida. Uh, and just says, though, if you look at the ETF industry and kind of break it down into kind of two industries—one small and one thrive—one uh, small and thriving, excuse me—the other large and struggling. And they just talk about how the 20 largest ETF issuers in the United States gained assets last year. 13 of them still lost ground or failed to increase their market share, and more than 85% of all ETFs started each year failed to pass the threshold of $100 million in assets in their first year. And liquidations are at an all-time high. If we have a much more problematic year, perhaps, uh, this year or different year, certainly than last year where you could kind of throw money, it felt like, at a lot of things and do well, would you anticipate seeing some fallout? within or continued fallout within the ETF industry?
1: I, I think there's no question now that the the evolution of the ETF industry, you know, I've been in it now for gosh, close to twenty years and, you know, from the very origins when it was easy to innovate, it was easy to bring new product to the marketplace and occupy new investment niches that hadn't, hadn't had good client access prior to the inter- introduction of some of these ETF products. Well, that was then and this is now. You're now getting where almost every space on the shelf has been occupied with, a, with ETFs that are appealing to almost every flavor under the sun of investment strategy. And that's a World where, as you described, if you do not have a real differentiated story, if you don't have a real differentiated uh, market uh, access and niche that you are you are exploiting. I mean, there's a lot of me-tooism out there, and people are really struggling, both in terms of gaining the assets, as you mentioned, but also in terms of sort of a race to the bottom in terms of fees, Mm -hmm. where everybody's headed so fast to zero in any kind of generic-type strategy. So it's all about differentiation, differentiation in terms of the strategy that you're pursuing, but also critically important differentiation in how you're serving your customers so that they adopt your product rather than someone else's.
0: But frustrating, too, right, Michael? I mean, when you're going up against two giant players, BlackRock and Vanguard, together, they control 65% of the U.S. ETF market. If you throw in State Street, uh, Street which, of course, uh, runs uh, you know SPY, the oldest and largest ETF, you're looking at Eighty-three percent of all domestic ETF assets. It's hard to go up against them, especially when they can push down fees a lot to kind of gather more uh, investment flows.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And if you are a, if you're in one of those. Um type ETF providers that you need to be able to compete in that space where Vanguard and BlackRock are bringing in close to a billion dollars a day Mm -hmm. and have to bring in a billion dollars a day because they're so huge, their redemptions can be uh, close to that number. So just to break even, they have to bring in huge assets. If you are competing at that level, then this is a really really tough environment, and it's t- as we say a lot around uh, Riverfront. You-, you can't out BlackRock BlackRock, and you shouldn't try. On the other hand, you mentioned where it could be the best of times for folks who are more like like us, where we are exploiting specific niches and specific markets that aren't really uh, attractive necessarily to a behemoth. You know. Six trillion dollar money manager like BlackRock, right. but for a seven ten billion dollar money manager like us, they're phenomenal, and we can solve problems that they don't solve um, because you know there's not a big enough market for them. We're, we've innovated with a series of actively managed ETFs that bring the value of active management into the ETF space and capitalize on the tax advantages of the ETF structure. Uh, Yet not many people have done that because if you're a Vanguard, uh, you're all passive. If Mm -hmm. you're a BlackRock, that's an endangerment to your pricing model.
0: Michael, just got about uh, 25 seconds here. Having said that, fair enough um, that you might be able to take advantage of, you know, a niche within the market. But, Most of these ETF strategies, a lot of them have not been yet really tested in a down market. So who knows how it will play out? Just got about 20 seconds.
1: Well, I think if, if you're talking about equity fixed income, excuse me, equity ETFs, yeah. I don't think we're going to have too much of a problem. The 2008 market was a pretty good testing ground, and liquidity held up really well. If you're talking about the fixed income areas where yep. sometimes the ETF is more liquid than the underlying paper, there may be some struggles if we have a fixed income pullback.
0: Michael Jones, President and CEO at Riverfront Investment Group, joining us from the ETF conference underway in Florida. This is Bloomberg Radio. We traded hard way done where the trade winds play. Ah, trade. Yes, trade between Mexico and the United States and Canada back in focus. Another round of NAFTA talks. In fact, getting underway tomorrow. Let's get a check on that. Joining us right now, someone who knows an awful lot about trade, Fred Hochberg. Hochberg. He is former chairman and president of the Export-Import Bank of the United States, currently a fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics, and he joins us on the phone uh, from Miami. Uh, nice to have you here with us um, what are we, in our seventh round of negotiations with NAFTA, I think? Um, tell us about this process and how you anticipated it might go.
4: You know, the tricky thing, as I was reflecting on this, is, you know, trade negotiations are like dating. You know, there's got to be a certain <laughs> momentum. And uh, I'm, I'm a little worried about the momentum here because, uh, you know, if you don't hear from someone you're dating for a long time, you begin to, order, well, it's really going in the right direction. Uh, the positive well, is... Can the I just positive is yes, go on. Well, I was
0: just thinking with that dating analogy, I kinda like it. You know, sometimes <laughs> you're in a relationship for a while and sometimes you gotta take a step back and kind of reevaluate. And I think that's where right. President Trump is coming from. Do you agree with that?
4: I do. I mean, the problem, of course, listen, this was negotiated over 20 years ago. The Internet wasn't where it is. E-commerce, telecom, none of that was ever anticipated in it. So it does need to be updated. The challenge always is when you update it, everybody wants to open up, and there are always going to be winners and losers. And the losers scream really loud, and the winners are often in disbelief they're really going to win. So that makes Yes, of course you should open it up, but it does make it much more challenging to do so.
0: It, yeah. Who's in the driver's seat on this? Or is it fair to say that everybody has something to lose, everybody has something to gain in this process as, as the talks are ongoing?
4: Well, without question. I mean, part of the, our three economies are have been really intertwined largely as a result of NAFTA in terms of supply chains and in terms of of being more competitive globally. And I think we have to remember this was designed not to benefit one country versus another, but to make the combination of Canada, the U.S., and Mexico a more forceful competitor against Asian competitors and against other parts of the world. Because if you put those three countries together, we're close to 500 million people, just under 500 million people. That makes us a much more competitive block than just trying to go it alone.
0: You know, it's interesting, too, and I think we've all been trying to assess, right? We did have this three-day shutdown. Uh, The Senate has advanced the the funding bill that would end the government shutdown, but the process is still ongoing. In any way, this three-day shutdown, will that impact these negotiations that are happening tomorrow?
4: Well, I I think the positive is uh, they have planned for nine days of discussion and negotiation in Montreal. And I think that's actually, we should see that as a positive. That's a serious amount of time, um, but the big issue is still autos, and uh, everybody has to be mildly unhappy with the outcome. That's what a good negotiation is, um, and we've gotten to a world where the word compromise and suboptimal are like dirty words. And frankly, we're going to—if we want an agreement—we have to find a compromise that works both economically and also works politically. It works politically for the United States and the United States workers, and but it's going to have to work well enough for the C- Canada and Mexico as well. Otherwise, we're not going to get a deal.
0: Is this more about a political deal for President Trump and his team, or is it about an economic win?
4: Well, it does feel like a political win, that President Trump has been very intent on making sure that those who have backed him, his core supporters, are continually uh, provided— with his promises. And I think we've heard over the weekend um, some conflicting news coming out of the White House in terms of the White House wanting to take a, quote-unquote, tougher stand on trade. Um, we have the State of the Union in a in little over a week, and I think that's going to be a real tell in terms of how, what comes out of that speech. What, what is the president trying to accomplish and set out as his agenda for the year ahead?
0: Fred, you know, your experience in terms of working in and around Washington, um, I mean, how do we need to, and especially I think this goes out to our listeners, to citizens, to kind of understand maybe they feel somewhat removed from trade, although we shouldn't (laughs) because it really impacts everybody. But, I mean, how do we need to, as a nation, really look at uh, trade policy going forward and into the future? Just got about 40 seconds here.
4: Listen, I think of the United States. We're like the Walmart of trading partners. We have the, you know, We are the largest second only to China right now. And at times we're complaining about the local hardware store on the corner that we feel is cutting corners. You know, we've got a lot to lose by not being a global power, by not being a global trading partner. So I think we've got to tread carefully here, make sure we do the right thing for American workers and take care of things at home. But we've got to – we benefit a lot globally from our trading relationships and our position.
0: I love how you said that. Fred Hochberg, so great to get some time with you, former chairman and president of the Export-Import Bank of the U.S., the U.S. being kind of the Walmart when it comes to uh, trade policy. I love that. He's a fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics, joining us on the phone.
4: It wasn't a rock Was a rock
0: Restaurant space, as you know, continuing to evolve. We've got fast food, fast casual, online ordering. No one knows more about the evolution than Red Lobster turning 50 years old this year. Here with what the company is focusing on is Kim Lopdrop. He is CEO at Red Lobster. And welcome to Bloomberg.
5: Thank you, Carol. Great to be here.
0: What do you like about the restaurant space? You've been in it for a while.
5: I I have. I've been in it most of my career, and I I absolutely love it. I I love food, and I love people, and that's, that's what the restaurant business is all about. Both
0: can be, though, incredibly frustrating. (laughs) (laughs)
5: Uh, But they, they can be incredibly wonderful when you get them right.
0: Um tell me though about the evolution because we have seen um, Fast Casual really come on and really challenge some of the existing players that have been here for decades, like yourself, coming up with different types of food, different types of models. Um, what has that made you guys have to do?
5: Well, first, Carol, let me say this is a very exciting time for Red Lobster. We just celebrated our fiftieth anniversary on Thursday. Uh, and we've, uh, uh, we're the best we've ever been, and we are focused on four key growth opportunities. One is to keep growing our share of, of the seafood business. Second is to uh, open new units. Third is to grow our off-premise business, And fourth is to give guests new ways of using Red Lobster so that they can come more often.
0: And that includes embracing the online world, maybe doing things through various services and so on and so forth? It it
5: absolutely does. For example, this month we went uh, national with online ordering. So Mm -hmm. that's now in uh, virtually all of our restaurants and will be 100% by the end of the month. And we're testing delivery with a number of services and have just invested in improved takeout packaging in all of our restaurants.
0: All right. So you're just a month in in terms of online. So I know it's early in the game, but what kind of activity have you already seen? Uh,
5: we're definitely seeing uh, strong growth in, in off-premise sales. Uh, really spiked uh, as, last month as we started rolling this out and is continuing this month.
0: You say you're the best that you've ever been. Yes. People would always say you can do things better. Sure. <laughs> you can always continue to grow. Where do you see the business going?
5: Uh, our vision is to be where the world goes for seafood now and for generations. So there's three key components of that. One is... Um, uh, it is a, a global vision, not just a U.S. vision. Today, we're in eleven countries, uh, and there are more on the way. Uh, secondly, we're focusing on being a, a seafood specialist because that's where our competitive advantage is for a, a number of reasons. We think we have a huge competitive advantage on seafood. Third, we want to do we want to run this business in a sustainable way, uh, not only for uh, how we run our business, but for the resource. For example, we just on Thursday. Uh, went uh released a new a new website uh, at www.redlobster.com slash standards which mm-hmm. shows where everything is from. We are now 100% traceable, sustainable, and responsibly sourced.
0: Well, that's where I wanted to go because if anything, uh, the public has gotten rather discerning, even more so, and certainly, you know, uh, the younger generation, I hate to say that, but, you know, we all are kind of looking at where the food is coming from. Um, what has that done, though, to your costs and the way you run run your business?
5: Well, fortunately, uh, from the very early days, our company has had some leaders who are very, very passionate about uh, being, you know, you know, the best for the long term. And actually, we're leaders in sustainability. Actually, um, one of our former presidents worked with the United Nations to write the Law of the Sea Treaty, mm-hmm. and we founded a number, co-founded a number of industry organizations that have promoted better seafood standards. And we require all of our suppliers to follow those. Uh, so we've actually been focused on these things for many years, but we never talked about them because we kept saying, uh-oh, what if we're only at 99%, you know, and 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 uh, somebody can find that chink in the armor, and and uh, we finally realized, you know, we really need to talk about this stuff publicly and not just do it behind the scenes, and to do that, we realized we had to go back and check our whole seafood supply chain and make sure literally 100% was Uh, Traceable, sustainable, and responsibly sourced. Uh, We're there now. We went live with the with the website on on uh, Thursday.
0: Where is most of your seafood coming from? Uh,
5: The website actually shows you exactly where each type comes from. So again, I'd encourage you and your listeners to go to www.redlobster.com/slash/seafood-with-standards, and you can see the answers to that question.
0: But is a lot of it outside the United States?
5: Uh, We get a a significant amount from the United States. We get some from outside the United States as well. We have buyers in. Inspectors active in 20 countries around the world. Uh, the key is to work directly with suppliers, cut out middlemen, yep. so you get full traceability. You're able to work with suppliers, test, make sure they do everything to our standards.
0: So, how is this? You know, current administration and some of the policies. Uh, we certainly are watching trade policies right now because they've got another round of NAFTA talks uh, happening tomorrow, and of course, there's the tax overhaul. But talk trade first. Um, You know, what is it that worries you about that might come out of this administration when it comes to trade policy, especially when there seems to be a big pullback or pushback, if you will, on globalization and a lot more protectionism happening?
5: Right. Uh, We obviously have an international business and aspire to be even Mm -hmm. more international. Um, so we're certainly watching what's happening with interest. I will. I will say at this point, there's absolutely nothing that has changed our view that we can be a global business, and that continues to be our focus.
0: What about in terms of the tax overhaul plan? What does that mean for you guys? You guys don't have to disclose your private company, correct? Correct. So, but tell me, what does that do for your business?
5: Well, we we think that tax reform bill will clearly be stimulative for the economy. And certainly that's good for restaurants. It's good for us. Uh, So we are expecting it to be a positive for our industry and, and for us.
0: Kim, what kind of activity are you seeing? I do like talking to – there's a couple things. I love talking to transportation. I do love talking to restaurants because it gives you an idea whether or not, you know, consumers feel confident enough to go out and have uh, a meal. Um, What are you guys seeing in that activity – in that world?
5: Well, actually, the restaurant industry has started started to pick up again. uh, And – uh, you know, we're, we're private, as you said, so we're not going to get into re- the habit of reporting quarterly trends. results. No, but no, no, I, no. what I'm I will, asking, yeah, yeah. Sure. Now, the, the, if you look at NAPTRAC data or black box data, which report comparable restaurant sales for the industry, uh, the latest quarter was pr- pretty strong.
0: Okay, so, so the consumer seems to be out there. Yes. Interesting. Um, 50 years. Yes. Another 50?
5: Uh, Oh, more than that. Uh, Now and for generations, again, was the vision. And uh, we we absolutely believe um, that Red Lobster is uniquely well-positioned because we have such competitive advantage in our supply chain.
0: Kim Lupjop, he's the chief executive officer at Red Lobster, based in Orlando, Florida, in our New York studio on this Monday. This is Bloomberg.
5: Move around. Motion
3: creates emotion.
0: I feel the earth move under my feet.
3: You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake.
1: Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose.
2: Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up.
5: Bloomberg Markets Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg
1: Radio.
0: It's indeed, everybody. Time for a look at some of the stocks on the move in the Monday trade. I'm Carol Masser. My co-host Corey Johnson is off today. In his place, we've got Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg 11:30 studio, Uh, taking a look at some of the movers and shakers. We've got Chipotle Mexican Grill, your number one decliner. In the S&P 500 uh, here today, and I'm just taking a look to see the stock uh, down 4%, number one decliner down down... a share to $330 uh, a share even. Stock, though, still up about 14% this year. Just looking for some news uh, on uh, the name and not really seeing much. Uh, Let's see. Nope, there's not really any kind of call or anything. Um, But uh, keeping an eye on that name because it seems to be uh, under some pressure again. Of course, we know over the last couple of years we've seen a lot of pressure on the name because of concerns about food contamination, and that is certainly they um, put pressure, if you will, on same-store sales figures and uh, put pressure on the stock as well. And then we've also had some management changes as well. But anyway, shares of Chipotle Mexican Grill, uh, grill is uh, down 4% today.
2: Well, it's a whole lot easier to explain the biggest gain in the S&P 500 than the biggest loss. It belongs <laughs> <lost> to here. <laughs> First Energy. Utility owner received a $2.5 billion investment from the activist and firm Elliott Management and uh, some other investors. Now they're going to use the money to cut debt and contribute to an employee pension fund, among other things. And beyond that... First Energy agreed that they're going to accelerate the process of getting out of the unregulated power business. They own nuclear plants and other plants, and you know they're they're looking to kind of back away because you know, they haven't done as well as they have with their utilities. Of course, regulated at the state level, uh, so they kind of lock in their rates of return. So. You know, the idea that they're getting this financial backing went over very well with Investor's First Energy with a gain of 10.4% on the day.
0: You know, Davis this is a stock that pops up a lot in the uh, active category, and I'm talking about Ulta Beauty. Uh, it is the number one. Uh, for, for, <laughs> let's try that again. It's the number two decliner in the S&P 500. Right behind Chipotle. Yep. Three point seven percent to the downside, down more than nine bucks, two hundred thirty-five dollars uh, and a penny a share, still up about five percent this year. In terms of what we've got on it, uh, ultra, ultra Beauty uh, sinking after uh, Piper Jaffray analyst uh, Aaron Murphy cautions that the cosmetic retailer's brand reset may cause some store disruptions, keeping a neutral rating but boosting estimates and price target to two thirty from two hundred six to account for tax reform benefits. But anyway, uh, some pressure on that name as well. Let's also just quickly, if I may, because we've got Netflix earnings crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Netflix, uh, fourth quarter revenue, $3.29 billion. That's just a hair better than what uh, Wall Street was forecasting. They were looking for $3.28 billion. Uh, Also, fourth quarter total net streaming uh, ads, $8.33 million. That's much higher than the estimate from analysts, which was for 6.34 million. So that's uh, kind of new folks that they added in into their streaming world. As for the outlook, sees first quarter total net streaming ads at 6.35 million. That too is a bunch higher. Then the estimate that's been floating out there, Dave, a $5.18 million. Quick check on shares of NetStream in the after hour. No surprise, it is up 6.5% as we speak. We're going to be breaking down Netflix a little bit later on uh, with a couple of folks, so we'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later on.
2: Okay, since you mentioned earnings really quick, we had two companies in the S&P 500 come out with earnings before the opening bell. They both were well-received. One of them, Wynn resorts, their numbers for the fourth quarter beating analysts average estimates in Bloomberg survey it's all about a rebound in the Chinese city of Macau where they do most of their business win with a gain of 8.7 percent on the day and right behind that in the &P 500 Halliburton. Up six point four percent. The U.S. services company's revenue beating estimates by the most since 2011. Earnings also coming ahead of coming out ahead of projections before a charge for some unpaid bills in Venezuela and the uh, new U.S. tax law.
0: I just want to mention because I'm watching our live blog here on Netflix. Our Chris Palmieri, our L.A. bureau chief, saying Netflix turning in a big beat. The company's biggest quarter in a year ever. Subscriber additions beat expectations, although earnings never a focus of Netflix investors. Disappointed due to two charges. And as I mentioned, Netflix shares are rallying big time in the after hours. As for the VIX on this Monday, down 1.9 percent. The VIX closing at 11.04. This is Bloomberg.
4: All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for a price on Wilson. Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey,
0: Dave Wilson here with his Stock of the Day. Dave, what do you got?
2: Heritage Insurance Holdings. This is a property and casualty insurer that focuses on the state of Florida. That's the only place they provide coverage. They're based out of Clearwater, Florida. Went public in May 2014. The ticker is HRTG. Last September, the shares dropped below an initial public offering price of $11. As Hurricane Irma struck Florida, uh, the stock fell as low as $8.85, down 68% from a peak in July 2015. Even so, analysts stuck by Heritage. Data compiled by Bloomberg shows the stock had nothing for buy ratings for 16 months. The streak started in September 2016 and ended today when JMP Securities cut its rating. Analyst Matthew Carletti moved to a market perform. JMP's equivalent of hold. From a market outperform, he maintained a 12-month price estimate of $16, and that was about 16% lower than the stock's closed last week. Uh, Heritage bridged some of that gap today. Uh, Shares closing at $17.59 after falling 7.1%. That was the biggest decline since this past September. Ouch. Ouch, indeed.
0: All right, so that stock, uh, but a different day, different uh, feel today, right? Oh, no, no, HR, forgive me. Yeah. Taking a big hit.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens when, when analysts uh, you know get noticed. I mean, they, they can certainly uh, move a stock.
0: Yeah, they can indeed. All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. HRTG, Heritage Insurance Holdings, as Dave mentioned, taking a big hit today. And it's now down about 2.4% so far in 2018. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com.
1: You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.